All right, turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me ask you a, a personal question. Are you a legalist? Are you a legalist? Do you live life defined by rules? Is your re- relationship with God structured around keeping the rules? When I was a freshman and sophomore here at A&M, I was a Christian legalist. I had been saved by grace, by believing the gospel many years before, but I came to college and I lived a life defined by keeping rules, some personal, some biblical. And, and every night as I got ready for bed, I would take a shower and as I sat in the shower, I would evaluate my day against my list. Did I keep my list? Did I have a quiet time of at least 10 minutes? Did I study sufficiently? Did I exercise? Did I avoid all the bad things on my list? If I kept the list, then that day was a success. I I felt proud of myself. I felt good about myself. I felt like I was better than all the other people in the dorms who weren't keeping the list. But if I didn't keep the list, then I felt horrible. I felt ashamed. I felt worthless. That that was every night for me for two years. I went to bed either prideful or despairing, all based on whether I kept the list. Does that describe your life? Is that what your life looks like now or in the past? Do you live a life defined and driven by rules? Is your relationship with God all about keeping the rules, whether biblical or personal? Is that how you define closeness with God, keeping the rules? If so, that is legalism. And it's incredibly common in life among both believers and unbelievers, and it's the subject of our passage this morning. We're going to talk about legalism. So let's review for a moment. Let's set this in context. As we look back at the book of Romans, the big idea of the whole book of Romans is the righteousness of God. He is right in everything he is and in everything he does. And in the first section of Romans chapters one through three, we saw that God is right in condemning humanity because of our sin. That's the bad news of Romans. But then the good news of Romans, God is also right in justifying those who believe. In declaring us to be eternally and unconditionally righteous in his sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. That really good news inspired Paul to ask a question in chapter 6. That's what we looked at the end of last semester. Now that we are justified, why shouldn't we sin? If I am justified in the sight of God for all eternity, I can't lose that. I am for sure righteous in the sight of God. Then why not give into the pleasures of sin? It's a reasonable question. And Paul answers it and says, in short, whether you're justified or not, sin always leads to slavery and death. For the unbeliever, eternal death. For believers, a life of death. A life devoid, empty. A life that doesn't experience God's peace and joy. Sin always leads to slavery and death, whether you're justified or not. And so as we come out of chapter 6, Paul is assuming that he has convinced us. That we say, Paul, we're sold. We see we should not give in to sin. We should turn from sin because it only leads to slavery and death. We should instead present ourselves to God for sanctification, for, for growth in righteousness. Now that inspires a second question. Now that I've decided to turn from sin and pursue God, the question that dominates chapters 7 and 8, okay, so how do I do it? 
How do I turn from sin and turn towards God? How do I approach God? How do I draw closer to God? How do I grow in righteousness? Paul, how do I do this thing called the Christian life? How do I do this thing called sanctification? Now to answer that question, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Paul's audience. First century Jews who were believers, first century Gentiles who were God-fears, they grew up with the Old Testament, men and women who knew the Old Testament really well. They had been reading it and studying it all their lives. And Paul asked them, how is it that you, now that you're saved through Christ, how is it that you turn from sin and grow closer to God? How would they all have answered that question? Through the law. Through the law. It was the assumed answer of every first century person, Jew or Gentile, like through the law. You you can't really open to any page of the Old Testament without reading about the law. It's there from Exodus to Malachi. The story is all about the law. It dominates the Old Testament. The law, you really can't overestimate the importance of the law to the nation of Israel and the Old Testament. It was like uh, to us what the Bible and the Constitution together are. That's the law in the Old Testament. It's the foundation of of everything for the Jew. It's the foundation of their religion, of their government, of their society, of life. The law is huge to the Jew. And so when when Jewish believers or or first century Christians asked, how can I approach God? The assumed answer was through the law. And and when Paul talks about the law, let me give you a little background here. When When you see the word law in the book of Romans, almost every time Paul is talking about the Mosaic covenant law. That that huge list of commands given from God in Exodus through Deuteronomy, all of those commands, they are summarized in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you knew that that's what the Ten Commandments are, just the summary. Ten Commandments are the summary of God's Mosaic law given by God to the nation of Israel. Now, uh, let me help you for a minute understand the importance of the law to the Israelites. I I want you to see why it's important. Let, Let me ask you a question. What is it that makes the nation of Israel special? Why throughout the Old Testament are the Israelites called the people of God, but other nations aren't, do you know? It's actually, it's not the law. It's because of something that became long before the law. It's because of a promise that God made with one man named Abraham back in Genesis 12. God promised to Abraham all of these outrageously great things. He promised to give to Abraham and his descendants for all of eternity this huge chunk of land. Everything from the Nile River to the Euphrates and the Mediterranean to the Arabian Desert. All of it would belong to them forever. And he promised to multiply them. They would become a mighty nation that would never depart from the earth. And he promised to bless them outrageously, to give them prosperity, fertility, favor, peace, victory. And best of all, he promised that through them, he would bless the entire world. Those promises get pulled together into what we call the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant of promise that God gave to Abraham and his descendants, who we call the Jews. That's what makes the Jewish people special. They have the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is is incredibly good. All of these great promises, but it had one big gaping hole in it. One big thing that was lacking from the Abrahamic covenant. It promised all of these things to Abraham and his descendants, but it didn't tell him how to enjoy them. 
It didn't give them any way to access God's promised blessings. You can think of it this way. The Abrahamic covenant put all of this money in a bank account that belonged to Abraham and his descendants, but it didn't give them any way to access the account. There was nothing that they could do to access the promises of God in their lifetimes. That's why lots of Abraham's descendants spent a lot of years as slaves in Egypt. Because there was no way for them to access their account of all of these outrageous blessings. Well, all that changed 430 years after Abraham when God showed up and gave his people a second covenant. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt and led them to a mountain called Sinai and gave them a second covenant called the Mosaic Covenant that was built around a law around a list of commands in the Mosaic Covenant, it fixed what was lacking with the Abrahamic Covenant. It told the Israelites exactly what they had to do to access God's blessings. All of these outrageous promises that God made to them, now they knew exactly what they had to do in their lifetime to bring all of God's blessings into their lives. That's what the law is. The law was the way for Israelites to access the blessings of God. Do the law and I enjoy all of God's promises to me. God laid it out really clear to them after giving them this huge list of laws and exodus through Deuteronomy. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, God summarizes it this way. He speaks through Moses, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 3. Now it shall be. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, that is the law, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. So if you obey the law, you will be blessed, outrageously blessed by God in every aspect of your life. But if you don't obey, A few verses later, Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 16, it shall come about. If you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments, that is the law and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. In other words, if you don't obey the law, then God will do for you exactly the opposite of blessing. He will bring your lives down into the dust. He will crush you if you don't obey. This equation of the Mosaic Covenant law structures the rest of the Old Testament. This is what determines Israel's experience for the next 1,500 years. If they obey, they're blessed as a nation. If they don't obey the law, they're cursed. The law defined life for the nation of Israel for 1,500 years. It's what determined their existence and experience. Okay, so fast forward 1,500 years. Now you're reading Paul, and Paul tells you you need to turn from sin and draw near to God to receive the blessing of sanctification in life. Okay, how do you do it? Well, everyone would have said, through the law. That's always how we have approached God, how we have accessed God's blessings, how we have grown closer to God, through the Mosaic Covenant law. That was the assumption of every first century believer, not just Jews, but even Gentiles. But then Paul says something shocking. Paul says something incredible. Look actually back at chapter six for a second. Chapter six, look at verse 14. We read it just in passing last semester. Chapter six, verse 14, Paul says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law. That that phrase, that prepositional phrase, under law, it means law as a system. 
Law as a way to approach God, to access his blessings. Law is how you reach out to God. Paul's saying the law is no longer how you draw near to God. The law is not what has authority over you anymore. It's not your system for growing in godliness anymore. Now, uh, we probably don't realize how incredibly shocking those words would have been back in Paul's day. You are not under law? Wait a minute, Paul. We've been under law for 1,500 years. All of God's people have been under law for 1,500 years. That is the one and only way that we've approached God. And now in three words, you're setting that aside? You're doing away with 1,500 years of history in three words? Well, Paul just makes this shocking statement right here, but doesn't explain himself. He he finishes what he was talking about in chapter six, but he knows he's got to get back to this subject. He's got to explain himself because this is so shocking. This is so radical. This is now kind of the elephant in the room, if you will, for the first century church. Paul has got to explain what he means when he says we're not under law. And that's what Paul does in our passage. 7, 1 through 13 is Paul's explanation of those, two, of those three words, not under law. What does he mean by that? He's going to answer two questions about our relationship with the law this morning. How do believers relate to the law? He's going to tell us two things. First of all, he's going to tell us how believers have been set free from the law. How? How has it happened that we have been set free from this thing that has guided the people of God for 1,500 years? How? Then he'll answer why. Why did we need to be set free from the law? That's where Paul's going in our passage this morning. How and then why. Let's start with the how. How is it that believers have been set free from the law? Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. That's where Paul begins. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, then she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Here's what Paul's saying. How is it that we believers have been set free from the authority of the law, Well, the short answer is through death. We were set free of the law through death. What Paul wants us to understand is that the law has binding authority over a person. The the law is is no simple thing. Uh, The law is a serious thing. Uh, The law can't be set aside. It's nothing to trifle with. You can't sweep the law under the rug. The law had authority over a Jew from the day he was born until the day he died. It was just like marriage. Biblical marriage, you say to one another, till death do us part. It's a commitment. It's it's something that binds you until death. Serious stuff. The law bound a Jew until death. But that takes us back to what Paul said in chapter 6, verse 3. Look again at chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
That's the big idea. Paul wants us to understand when you believe the gospel, you were united with Christ in death. What's true of him became true of you. Just as he died, so in the eyes of God, you really did die the moment you believed the gospel. And so just like the bond of marriage, so the bond of the law came to an end at that moment of death. When death happened, the authority of the law over you ceased. The law has no authority over Jew or Gentile alike who is a believer because you died with Christ. The moment you believed, his death counted for you. That's what has set the law aside. So the law no longer has authority over you so that you can be married to another. That's the idea here. Your old marriage to the law has been set aside so that you could enter into a new marriage, a better marriage with Jesus Christ himself. That's what has happened to believers. We are now united with Christ, no longer united with the law. That's how this change happened. This, this radical thing, after 1,500 years of the people of God being bound to the law, it has been set aside because we have died with Christ. We're united with him in death. That's the, the solution, the big idea that Paul has for us. That's the how. That's how it is that believers are set free from the law. But for Paul's Jewish audience, this was really not the big issue. They weren't really worried about the how. What they really cared about is the why. Paul, why would I want to be set free from the law? The law is is one of God's greatest gifts ever to humanity. The law is good. God himself gave it. The law has been the guide to our nation for 1,500 years. Paul, why would I want to be delivered from the law? That's what Paul will spend most of his time looking at this morning. Why did we need to be freed from the law? And, And let me set that up for you by sharing with you a little history from World War II. Um, I'm an engineer by training, so I'm fascinated by machines, especially big, complex machines uh, like this. This is the Gustav Cannon from World War II. The Nazis built it. It's the largest artillery piece ever used in warfare. The thing is huge. It's it's four stories tall. It weighed 1,344 tons. That's over two and a half million pounds. It fired shells that were over 15,000 pounds. It could hit targets 23 miles away. It could pierce through 23 feet of reinforced concrete. There was literally nothing in the world that could stand long against this cannon. Guess what? Didn't matter at all. Didn't matter at all in the course of the war. The Nazis built two of them, and they fired together a grand total of only 48 shells in all of World War II. Why? Because their designers had failed to realize that in World War II, a new era had dawned. The era of fixed fortifications was over. It had been replaced by by fast, light, mechanized divisions that could outflank the enemy. The the Gustav's massive size was, was not just irrelevant in World War II. It was actually a liability. It took 250 men, 58 hours to assemble that thing. By that time, the battle was over. By that time, the battle had moved on. The Nazis ended up scrapping both of them themselves so they wouldn't fall into enemy's hands. This gun, which would have been the envy of every army in the old era, was worse than worthless in the new era. That's what Paul wants us to know about the law. This thing that was was the capstone, was the center of the old era, the Old Testament era before Christ, it is now no longer useful to us in the new era. It does not have power for us in the new era after Christ. It can't do for us what we want it to do. The law can't grow us closer to God. In fact, the law is not just useless, it's a liability in our approach to God. The law prevents sanctification in our life. It doesn't enable it. 
That's the big idea that Paul wants to, to help us understand this morning. He wants to show us why it is that we need to be set free from the law. He gives us the answer in summary form in verses five and six. Look at verses five and six. Paul says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. Just a a really simple summary contrast that Paul draws here. He wants to to contrast the the way of the law versus the way of the spirit. The law inspired or worked with sin to bring about death. In contrast, in the new age of the spirit, the spirit brings about newness of life. Now, Paul's going to focus on the spirit in chapter 8, so I'm going to have to pause on that till chapter 8. Paul's just going to focus today on the negative side of that contrast, the law. The law which works with sin to bring about death. He's got to talk about the law because what he has just done is raise a serious accusation against the law. When Paul says that the law works with sin to bring about death, that would have raised theological red flags in the mind of every one of his audience members. Because remember, the law was given by God. The law was given by God, but if the law works with sin to bring about death, then that means that the law is a source of evil. And if the law is a source of evil, then doesn't that mean that the lawgiver himself is a source of evil? That's where Paul has to go. Because remember, what is Romans about? What's the big idea? The righteousness of God. What Paul has just said seems to be a charge, an accusation against the righteousness of God. This thing that he himself gave has become a source of evil in our lives. Paul has to answer that charge. He has to explain himself. That's what he's going to do in the verses that follow, verses 7 through 13. He's going to focus on answering this charge. Read with me, starting in verse 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin. Taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Uh, Paul does a couple things here. First of all, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms, the law is good. The sin and death thing, not the law's fault. The law is good. The law is holy and righteous and just, just as the lawgiver himself is. The law is perfect. Paul lays out for us the the good that the law does. The law is actually a good, a perfect gift from God. It does great things for us. And the, the particular great thing that Paul lists here in this passage is that the law identifies sin for us. The law shows us our sin. It works just like an MRI machine. 
An MRI identifies what's wrong with you. You go to the doctor with a general sense that something inside of you isn't right. Maybe you've got some pain somewhere or something in your body isn't working right. And so you go and they do an MRI and the MRI identifies exactly what the problem is. That's what the law does. Without the law, our conscience would tell us that, man, there's something not right with what I'm doing. But the law tells us exactly what it is. The law identifies our sin. That's one of the good purposes of the law. That's what Paul mentions here. There's there's a lot of other good purposes that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, We're told that the law warns Israelites about the consequences of sin. The law was their advanced warning system. It, It told them that if you do this bad thing, this is what God will do in response. In that sense, it motivated them towards obedience by warning them about the consequences of sin. Uh, the law also, as we mentioned, it gave them access to the Abrahamic covenant promises. That's a good thing. That's why the law was gracious. It gave them a way to experience the blessings of God. The law, in addition, it, it unified Israel into a distinct nation. The law really was their constitution. Exodus through Deuteronomy, that's the constitution of their nation. It unified them and built them to be a distinct and special nation. Uh, Finally, for for the Israelites and for us today, one of the enduring legacies of the law is it reveals to us the extent of God's holiness. The law teaches us in no uncertain terms that God's holiness extends not just to our moral lives, our moral choices, but to our, our business practices, to what we do with our family, to what we do in private, that God's holiness touches and pulls within itself every aspect of our lives. The law does all of these good things. Paul wants us to understand the law is completely good. Paul would agree with the author of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The law really is good. That's the first point. It really is good, but the law is limited by sin in me. The law is limited by sin in me. The good that the law is designed to accomplish gets short-circuited by sin living inside of me. Now, when Paul says sin here, he's not referring to sinful actions, but to our sin nature, to the depravity within us, our bent towards sin, our innate love of sin. Our love of sin short-circuits the good that the law is designed to accomplish. So, So whose fault is it? that we do sinful things that lead to death. Well, it's not the law's fault, it's our fault. We're the ones to blame. The law recipients are at fault because we love sin, because we are sinners by nature. That's where Paul lays the blame. That's what he wants us to understand clearly. Look back at seven through nine. Look back with me at verse seven. What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Here's what Paul is saying when he says that before the law, sin is dead. He doesn't mean that that sin was non-existent before the law came around. What he means is that sin doesn't have power. It doesn't have strength and domination over you. I think Paul's looking here at his childhood. 
Said that when I was a little boy and, and didn't know the law, the rules of life, I, I was a sinner. I know that. We're, we're all born sinners. But sin didn't rule over me like it did after I learned the law. That same experience was true for Israel. They, they were sinners before getting the covenant at Sinai, but after the covenant, they were more in sin. It's true for all of us. Sin has less power over us, less domination over us before we know the rules than after we know the rules. But then the law comes and and sin wakes up literally. Sin is empowered. The law incites sin. The law inspires sin. That's what Paul wants us to understand about the law. When our sin nature comes in contact with the law, it is inspired. It is empowered. The law inspires sin. And Paul looks at at one example in his own life, coveting. Coveting was apparently a problem for Paul. To covet means to to want other people's stuff. And Paul always struggled with sin. But he says, when my teachers, when my parents began teaching me over and over again, Paul, you shall not covet, what did it do to me? It made me want to covet all the more. (laughs) It just reminded me how badly I want other people's stuff. It's like if you went to a guy and repeated over and over again all through the day, do not lust, do not lust, do not lust, do not lust. Okay, well, he's going to tell you, gee, I was thinking about lunch, but thanks, now I'm thinking about lust. Great favor you did for me. The command incites the sin. It inspires the sin because we are broken, because we are sinners. It's a great story told about the flagship hotel in Galveston. It's built out over the ocean, so it is actually possible for you to fish from your balcony of your room. The hotel didn't want you to do that, so they put up signs in all the rooms that would say no fishing from balcony because they saw when people fish, often they'd put weights at the end of their lines, but if they were high up in the hotel, they wouldn't think about how far down the water is. They wouldn't have enough line on their reel. So they'd cast out, the line would come to an end, the weight would swing back and break one of the $600 plate glass windows on that hotel. Happened over and over again. And the hotel tried all of these elaborate ways to prevent people from fishing to no avail until they stumbled upon the solution. They just took out the signs. They removed the no fishing from balcony signs from the rooms and no one fished from the balcony. Why? Because it's not really a natural thing to do. I I don't get to a hotel room and think, where's my fishing pole? I want to fish. You know, if you're in the hotel, if you've ever seen that hotel, they've got this beautiful pier on the back of it where you really can catch a lot of fish, much better fishing. But the problem is guests would get into their room and they'd see the sign. And they think, gee, I've never thought of that. And you you know, if you had to put up a sign to tell me not to do it, it must be really good fishing from here. So honey, get my pole. And they would fish. You remove the sign and the problem goes away because the command inspires the sin. So it always is with the human heart, with the sin nature. The command inspires the sin. When we hear that something is forbidden, it inspires us to want it all the more. They say forbidden fruit is the sweetest fruit in the mouth. You want it because it's forbidden. This is a great story told of Augustine, third century theologian who was, who was with his friends one day as a youth and they stole into, into a neighbor's yard to steal pears from his trees, not because they were hungry. They had plenty of pears on their own trees, but just for the sake of doing something forbidden. They didn't even eat the fruit. They fed it to the pigs. They wanted to do it just because they were told not to. That's how the sin nature works. When the sin nature comes in contact with the law, it just inspires more sin. It makes us want it. 
The sin nature uses law as its unwitting tool. And unfortunately, the law is powerless to stop it. That's the ultimate deficiency of the law. It can tell you what to do, but it can't help you do it. It can tell you what to do, but it can't give you the power to actually do the obedient thing. To use biblical language, the law can't change your heart. It can't fix what really ails you, the sin nature inside of you, your love for sin, your bent for sin. The law can't do anything about it. It's really fascinating. Right in the middle of giving the law in Deuteronomy, God himself laments. Deuteronomy 5.29, God says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. When you read this verse, you are meant to hear the sadness in the heart of God. He's giving the laws a good thing, but he knows this good gift I'm giving you, it doesn't fix what ultimately ails you. It does not change your heart so that you will obey. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.21, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. His point is, it can't. The law can't give you life. All the law can do is tell you how dead you already are. That's the only power the law has. Point out your deadness. It can't give you life. In that sense, the law really is like an MRI machine, both in a good way and a bad way. The law and an MRI machine can tell you exactly what's wrong with you but can't do anything about it. MRI machine can tell you you have cancer, but it can't cure your cancer. Same with the law. It can tell you you're a sinner, but it can't cure your sin. That's why you had to be delivered from the law. That's the answer to the question. You had to be delivered from the law because the law became sin's unwitting tool and led you into more sin. The law became an excuse for sin and the law couldn't do anything about it. The law couldn't fix your heart. It could not lead you into righteousness. The law was a dead end street. That's why God had to deliver us from the power of the law. Now let's talk about us. What does this mean to us? Most of us are not Jewish. None of us are living in the first century. What does it mean to us? Well, the first thing to understand is what is true of the law is true of all laws. What Paul is saying is true of the Mosaic law is true of of every attempt to approach God through rules, through through laws, whether they're biblical or, or personal. Paul talks about the Mosaic law because it's the best law ever given. Best law ever given from God himself. If there was any law, any list of rules that could ever draw you closer to God, ever give you access to God's blessings, it would have been the Mosaic law. But if it failed, then it means that all of our puny attempts to keep a list of rules are going to fail as well. The Mosaic law can't sanctify me, then neither can my dumb little list I crafted as a freshman at A&M. Paul wants us to understand, if you reduce your life to a list of rules, you will be living a life of failure, even as a believer, because the law incites sin that leads to death. That is the unavoidable equation of legalism. It looks like this. If you choose to approach God through the law or a law or any list of rules, then you are necessarily relying on yourself, your strength to meet and keep your list. And as a result, you are just giving power to sin. Because sin inside of you will take advantage of you and lead you to death. That is the invariable equation of legalism. You can't escape it. If your life is about keeping the rules, it will give power to sin and lead you to death. There's no way around it. No way around it. I remember a few years ago, there was a Christian organization on campus that promoted legalism. 
They promoted legalism. They, they taught that you had to keep a, a pretty extensive list of rules if you wanted to show that you were a Christian. If you didn't keep the rules, then either you weren't a Christian or, or for sure you weren't a mature Christian. Well, that teaching appealed to a lot of Christian guys in particular who who were tired of seeing all the the lukewarm, hypocritical Christianity in the American church. So tired of all the hypocrisy, they they sign up. Okay, I, I sign on the dotted line. I commit to this form of Christianity. And they started out with great excitement. They worked their tails off trying to keep the list. They worked incredibly hard, put in so much effort. But as the weeks dragged into months, fatigue began to set in. They got tired. Semester got hard. Life got tough. And at some point, their willpower caved in and they gave in to sin and broke the list. And it left them crushed, devastated. I mean, some of these guys were literally weeping as a result of it. Some of my friends who are fellow pastors here in town had to rush in and pick up the pieces of these guys' lives and reintroduce them to grace, pull them out of the oppression and powerlessness of legalism. If you live a life based on the list, based on keeping rules, it's going to be a life of failure, fatigue, and powerlessness. Really depressing way to live. But there is good news. There's another way. Back to chapter 6, verse 14. There's life under the law, but there's also life under grace. Life that approaches God through grace. Paul's contrast here is, are you drawing near to God through the law or through grace? Through the gift that God gives you, Paul wants you to understand, if you approach God through God's grace, then you are relying on his spirit, on the power that his spirit provides you. And as a result, that's going to give power to righteousness in your life. It's going to fill your life with righteousness, and that will lead you to life, to the experience of everything that God means by life, joy, peace, power, satisfaction, perseverance. All of that will come true in your life if you're walking in grace. It's two contrasting ways of life. You can't mix them. They do not mix like oil and water. You're in one or the other. You're choosing to walk through the law to God or through grace to God. If you walk through grace, then it fills you with the power of the spirit, which fills your life with righteousness, which leads you to life. The life of grace is all about receiving from God, not doing for God. It's about receiving strength from God, power from God, grace from God every day, rather than trying to keep your list of commands. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about the the life under grace in chapter 8. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It's about how the Spirit comes in and fills us with God's grace for sanctification. This morning, what I want you to do is simply walk out of here with an appreciation for grace. An appreciation for grace. As, as I studied this stuff and prepared this sermon, it made me really wish that I could go back in time and talk to myself as a freshman at A&M. I wish I could tell myself, Blake, you need to relax. You need to realize that, that your attempts at legalism are causing you to forget the grace of God. Blake, on a day that you keep your list to a T, God does not love you a bit more. On a day that you fail your list, God does not love you a bit less because God already loves you infinitely and unconditionally. Your list doesn't bear at all on that. God's love for you is a gift. Not just the day that you accepted the gospel, but every day thereafter, it's a gift. Your relationship with him is a gift to receive and to enjoy. So quit worrying about the list. Think about Jesus, not the list. 
I wish I could help myself understand. Legalism says do, grace says done. God doesn't want you to add anything to what Jesus has already done. There's nothing you need to put on the table. Your list does not draw you any closer to God. It does not make God love you anymore. Grace says done. It's all done. Christ has done it all. There's nothing you need to do. Let me help you apply this. What does it mean to live a life under grace? What does that look like? To live a life under grace, uh, number one, it means that every day you choose to believe that God's infinite love is already unconditionally yours. You wake up and you say, today, God is not gonna love me more in 12 hours if I have kept my list. And he's not gonna love me less in 12 hours if I don't keep my list. He loves me infinitely, and by the definition of infinite, I can't increase it. He loves me unconditionally. By the definition of unconditional, I can't decrease it. His infinite and unconditional love is already yours forever. That's life under grace. You believe that God's infinite, unconditional love is already yours. Second, each and every day you choose to believe that everything you need to be accepted and approved by God was already done for you by Christ. You choose to believe that everything that makes you right in God's eyes was done by Jesus 2,000 years ago. There's nothing you need to add. Jesus' death and resurrection is, is all that's needed. When Jesus was on the cross and proclaimed, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say most of it's done, so fill in the rest. No, it's done, it's finished. There's nothing else you need to add. It's completely finished. Everything you need to be accepted by God was done by Christ. So every day waking up, believing these two things, and then third, a life under grace means a life where you choose to focus on thankfulness rather than on keeping your list. You set your mind on thankfulness rather than rule keeping. I, I, I lament over how much better those first two years of college would have been for me if every night in the shower, rather than evaluating my day against the list, I spent that time thanking Jesus for what he did for me. If I was focused on that, Lord, what did you do for me today? Where did I see you working? Where did I see your grace today? If that would have been where my mind was focused, I would have had so much more joy, so much more victory, so much more significance in life. Yes, I would have been obeying, but obeying out of thankfulness, obeying out of God's grace, not out of an attempt in my effort to keep my list. Living under grace means choosing to focus on thankfulness rather than on keeping your list. Now, we're going to go much deeper in this in the, future, uh, in the future sermons that we're looking at in chapter 8. But for now, I just want to go before the Lord. I want us to go before the Lord. I want us to pray and ask him to please help us to see where we are living out legalism. It's a temptation to all of us to convict us of that, challenge us of that, and pray that he would help us to truly believe these truths. That his infinite love is already unconditionally ours and that everything we need to be accepted by him has already been done by Christ. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that whether we choose to believe them today or not, they are true forever. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to accomplish the full and complete price of redemption. We thank you that through your spirit, you provide all of the grace for sanctification. We thank you, Lord, that everything good in our lives and everything good in this universe is at your hands. You have done it. We don't add anything to that. Lord, we thank you that your love is already ours. I pray for any person in this room, Lord, who, who has a hard time believing that, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning. Help them to understand what it means that you love them infinitely and unconditionally through Christ. 
I pray, Father, for all of us who have have believed in Jesus, who have believed that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I pray that you would convict us of our legalism, Lord. I I confess in my own life as a recovering legalist, it is so tempting to, to live my days by a list of rules. I pray for all of us that you would convict us of that. And I pray that you would replace that focus on a list with a focus on thankfulness, Lord. I pray that our minds would be preoccupied with Jesus, with what he has done for us rather than on what we do for him. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see in greater detail the grace, the love, the mercy shown us through Christ, through his death on the cross as a payment for our sins and his resurrection from the grave to conquer sin and death forever. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. I pray that you would help us to live in light of that, to live lives under grace, empowered by your grace. In the name of your son who makes that grace possible, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Live in grace this week.